All right, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, our session on uh, the power of the invisible church. What, an, what on earth can that mean? And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today. Uh, I'm going to share some ideas. I'm going to confess to you up front that um, these are topics. This is a topic that's rather personal to me as I was a minister of the church for a long time, uh, about 11 years. Um, so if you detect any kind of my own wrestling match with all of this, it's real. Um, you know, what is the, how, how, how do, how does the system and, um, uh, and the Holy Spirit and the church and all that makes up the church work together? And so at the beginning, you're going to hear some fairly um, uh, abstract ideas, and then I'm going to geek out and talk a little bit about what even some research shows about how organizations uh, stumble. And, uh, and then I hope in between all of that, you will feel invited to be a part of the conversation because uh, that's what a class is about. A lecture is for listening, but a class is for engaging. So let me begin with a word of prayer and then uh, we'll dive in, all right? Our Father, we thank you for this week. It has been a blessing already to be with uh, such dear friends from around the country, in fact, around the world. And we're grateful to be together uh, again today to think through and to understand what you're doing in this world. Our real desire, Father, is to come alongside you, but we fail to do that in so many different ways. We struggle to, um, to figure out how to align ourselves with you. And so uh, we pray that during this conference this week, as we consider what it means to be the spirit-filled people of God, that you will, uh, you will begin to bind us together to make that clearer to us so that we not only as individual believers but as the collective body of Christ can be active and participating in the world that you, in the new work reality that you're creating. We thank you for our time together, and I pray for your blessing upon uh, this next hour. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. So the big idea that I'd like to kind of work through today is this. That the same Holy Spirit that hovered over the earth and enabled the creation is the same Holy Spirit that gifted and enabled artisans of the Old Testament, is the same Holy Spirit that renews all things and enables the church to participate in new creation. That's the big idea. That's what we're going to talk about today. When I was uh, a little boy, and I mean a really little boy, I grew up in Bakersfield. You all know where that is? That's Central Valley. And uh, I grew up at the East Bakersfield Church of Christ. And I remember my first job in church. It was given to me by my father. Uh, and I looked forward to it every single Sunday. I would sit down next to him. There was no children's Bible hour in those days. We sat in rickety old chairs that made a lot of noise. And so uh, kids that were uh, fidgety could be heard everywhere in the church. And I was one of them. But I must have been around four years old, maybe a little, a little older. 
And I would sit there dressed up and I'd wait for my dad to give me the signal. And right before it was time for the men to come out of the back hallway, this was the parade of people who would participate in the service that day. Before that happened, my dad would look over at me and he would nod, just like this. He'd go, and little Ricky would get up and shuffle out and walk, almost run, but walk all the way to the back to this big board that was on the side of the wall that had every member's name on it. And underneath every member's name, there was a hole that was drilled into this board. I don't know who made it, but it was a lovely board, but it was homemade. And at the bottom of the board was a tray with golf tees. Anybody know how the golf tees thing works, right? And so my job was to pick up the golf tee and to find our name, and I knew where it was because it didn't shift all that much. Although when we had new members after a, uh, you know, some kind of gospel meeting or whatever, the order would shift a little bit because it was all in alphabetical order. And I'd reach up really high and I'd put the golf tee into the Gibson family name and I'd walk back, shuffle back, sit in the seat and I'd wait for the thing that I needed the most. And I looked at my dad and my dad would look at me and he'd go. And we had done church. It was done. I could prove it. I had a golf tee. Our family could prove it. We had a golf tee. We were there. We were, we were validated for one week. And that was a piece of a system. That was a piece of a way of kind of keeping track of the members. And by the way, let me just say that those were rich years of our lives. Our families were part of a church that did kind of keep track of one another. But it was part of a structure, part of a system. From everything, from the men that would walk in at the appointed time to take their seats up behind the podium, some in the front row, to getting the nod from dad, to putting in the peg, to the person who came afterwards and took out all the pegs and wrote down all the names. It's actually a pretty ingenious idea, low tech, but it worked. But it was all part of a system. Um, years later, I went into ministry, and I was in ministry for 11 years. I told you this is kind of a personal topic for me. And in ministry, uh, I began to realize there were systems that I knew. Some of them were systems I created uh, because we need systems to organize ourselves to make sure that we have some kind of structure around what we're doing so that we can repeat it, so that we can be efficient. I'm not here to even complain about systems. We need them. But I also learned that there were some systems that I didn't even know existed. So one of the things we were trying to do at the Mission Viejo Church for many years, I worked there for 11 years. Uh, Jeff Walling was the uh, preaching minister. I was the, every, I was the everything else minister. And, um, and so one of the things we were trying to do back in the day was really trying to connect to young people. Uh, no surprise, that's a, obviously a, uh, something Jeff cares deeply about. And so we had the unique uh, opportunity of being in a church setting or, a, or a, uh, uh, in a setting in the town where we really were the only church in town that did not share a, uh, a corner with another um, store or strip mall or something. We were in the middle of a neighborhood. There were a lot of reasons that made that possible, but that was unique. We were not zoned to be a church, but that gave us an advantage to be right in the middle of a neighborhood. And so we decided let's be the church 
of those of these neighbors of these of this community and they all had kids and so I got involved there began to work and we were trying this and we were trying that and one of the things we tried was the uh, children's theater workshop which was a big hit the first year we did a lot of work uh, to get that ready and we had the, the kids there were uh, rehearsing for this and rehearsing for that and so we would make punch uh, for them during the breaks it was VBS punch you know we, we knew how to make that and we had that ready for the breaks we did this instead of VBS, in fact, and it really kind of worked out. But then we came up with an idea. Look, these kids are here not just from 10 to noon. They're here in the afternoon. They're here in the evenings. Rehearsals got longer. It became a whole summer thing. Let's put in a Coke machine. So we did. We put in a, we put in a soda machine. Well, one of the parts of my job was not just working with the kids, but was also working with the seniors. Now, remember, I was the, every other, the everything else minister. And so I was working with the seniors, and I would take them to lunch. And they would tell me what they were thinking, what they were interested in, what was concerning them, whatever that might be. And so I would always have something waiting for me when we had lunch at the local Sizzler, Sizzler on Marguerite Parkway. And I recall uh, vividly the moment when Edith Peake raised her hand. We had a group of seniors, probably um, 15 or more that were there. We were all... Uh, enjoying our Malibu steak and uh, our Malibu chicken and uh, we were having a good lunch but Edith raised her hands and she said Rick I noticed there is a soda machine in the fellowship hall and the murmurs across the table I mean, that was news it seemed to be to the others they didn't know that and there were murmurs across the table a little bit of rattling of the glasses I understand there's a soda machine in the fellowship hall and then she said something that just cut out my heart she said what's next slot machines I have no idea how she made a leap from soda machines to slot machines, but she did. And, oh my goodness, the seniors were in an uproar. They were trying to uh, find scripture to even say, this is not the way we do things. I mean, somehow, violating the rule of VBS punch, having a coin operate. Does it take money, Rick? Yeah, it takes money. We have to pay for the soda. Oh, well, you know, and so it, would, it, was, it created quite a buzz. Uh, they were all after me. I had made the decision. They couldn't believe that. They began to use words like slippery slope and all that kind of thing because somehow the soda machine signaled the end of what we knew to be church. <laughs> what we were really doing, though, is we were just abiding by a whole set of unwritten rules, a structure, a system, something that said, this is how we know what we are. This is how we know what we do. And this is how we can satisfy ourselves that this is somehow working. Listen, again, our topic today is not really about systems, but we're going to talk a little bit about the machine that the church can become and how that can sort of butt up against what God may actually be doing through our churches. And, um, and it's funny, this topic, even though we are talking specifically about churches, this topic can be uh, applied, and some of what we're going to talk about today can be applied across any kind of organization, because it involves that thing, that sticky, that complicated thing called human nature. And so we're going to try to figure out today, how is it that we align ourselves with what God is doing through his spirit? And the first thing for us to do is to acknowledge what's up on, uh, up on the wall here. And that it is simply this. That the same Holy Spirit that hovered over the earth enabled creation 
is enabling the church today to participate in God's new creation. And I'm going to use a word that is a little um, abstract, but the word is generative. It is uh, my contention and my belief that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not uh, only comforting, it is not only uh, creative, but it is generative. It is doing something. It is mobile. It is active. And we are being invited into that. Um, there's a great story uh, in Acts chapter 3 and 4. You know it. It is when the Spirit becomes um, very active in enabling the church. It really is the spark, in my view, of the generative church, of the work of the church joining God in his new reality and the work that he is creating. You know the story in Acts chapter 3, the story of Peter and John healing a lame man. He had been sitting at the gate named called Beautiful for, uh, for years. Everyone knew them as they went to the temple to pray. Uh, they decided to reach out to the man and they engaged him and healed him and with the power of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ. The people all recognized the man as he jumped up and as he was leaping around, obviously thrilled as anyone would be, and they recognized him as that same man. And Peter and John began to preach to the people and say, look, they witnessed that this was done in the power of Jesus. This was done in the power of, of, of Jesus who had once been with us, who had died, but had been resurrected. The authorities, of course, are alarmed by this. They're, they're worried because they felt they had put this Jesus thing to rest. But in fact, we had people saying, no, the power of Jesus is still with us. But it's in a different body. It is in what is becoming the church. They, called, they were called before the Sanhedrin after spending a night in prison. And they were asked by what power they performed the miracle. And Peter says a brilliant thing. And in fact, they were so surprised that this fisherman and that uh, these uneducated people could be so eloquent as they expressed themselves. And he said, are you calling me to account because of some kind of act of kindness? Peter and John had the support of the people, but politically they were threatening the establishment. They clearly healed this man, so they couldn't argue against that, right? They couldn't say, all right, well, don't do that. Uh, or you didn't do that because there was evidence that they had and so what the Sanhedrin and the authorities of the day said is, do these wonders, but what? Don't do them in the name of Jesus. So what did Peter and John do? They went back to the church to start doing them again in the name of Jesus. They returned to the church and told them everything that had happened. And when the church heard this, they understood that this was some kind of um, uh, ex um, uh, example of God's power, not all, only over nature, but over authorities of the earth. They recognized the fulfillment of prophecy. They asked God to be enabled with the same power. We want to be enabled to do what Peter and John, we want to continue on and have the power that we saw in Christ. And so the generative reproducing church was born. And through the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ, the church breathes, moves, joins God in his creativity this day. Um, let's read from Acts chapter 4, starting verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you make the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and, why, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable us, your servants, to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And then here is perhaps the greatest miracle of all. All the believers were one in heart and one in mind. It's a powerful thing when you begin to think of yourself as not only recognizing the power of the Holy Spirit and trying to have some vague understanding of what that may be as a comforter, but to think of it as a creative force, to think of it as the agent of God's mission in this world, and to think of yourself as the church of being invited into that creative activity. What I love about our students at Pepperdine is it unlike me, uh, and, I've, and, I, and they are changing me, but for much of my life, I would sort of just think of myself as, a, as part of a church that was just simply waiting for the Lord to come. Our students, they believe this story is still unfolding, and they want to be a part of it. That's very different when you're a church that says, look, we're going to wait until the Lord comes, so we're going to gather around and defend it. But no, what about instead of building a moat around it, what if we were to engage? Because that's, in fact, what I think this story begins to tell us that God is doing through his Holy Spirit. Um, Leonard Allen, who is the scholar of this year's um, Bible lecture, our topic and all, he, um, he did some teaching with those of us who are participating this year. And he made an interesting observation. I know it's not his alone. But he asked the question, where did the church decide to sort of abandon its um, relationship? And, and, and abandon is the wrong word. We just don't really know how to grasp the relationship with the Holy Spirit. And Leonard, Leonard noted that uh, in the Christian tradition of the West, not of the East, but in the Christian tradition of the West, we do tend to marginalize it. So in the Protestant tradition, you know, our trinity was the Father, the Son, and the Scripture. And in the Catholic tradition, it was the Father, the Son, and the Church. The Eastern tradition really does magnify the spirit. And so there's an interesting challenge for us to th think about how is it that we invite the spirit into not just our own lives. There have been all kinds of classes this week and we'll continue around meditative uh, practices, uh, ways to engage the spirit working within you. But what about our churches collectively? How does that happen? Well, the first thing I'd like for us to do today is to think a little bit about um, what stands in the way, what, what may stand in the way of that. 
minus a spirit-led animating vision of God's future reality, our, uh, or a desire for the struggle of shared aspirations, the church will labor as an adaptive community. Hold on to that line. Reacting to real-time change and opportunities. In the age of hyper-change or hyper-acceleration, adaptive organizations will respond too slowly. And the great struggle to cope, grow, or survive will create either panic or institutional fatigue and eventually failure. What's interesting about this um, is that this is work that others have written about organizations at large, but uh, even in the secular world. But do you see some elements of truth in this as we think about our churches? Right now, we're struggling through significant change and how to adapt to it. But adapting isn't really enough. How do we engage it is the real question. Let me pause here before I go into show you, and this is the, this is the point where we're going to geek out a little bit maybe together. But um, let me just pause for a moment and ask, what if this statement resonates at all? What is it that you see? What is it that um, you question? Anything at all that leaps out at you from either uh, the, 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 the pace of change, what it means to be adaptive, what it means to cope, grow, or survive, panic, any signs of that? Any, anything resonate at all with what you're seeing? Yeah. I, um, the perspective of being defensive as a way of approaching change, I think, does to me. Yeah. That once you're in that posture, you've already failed. Yeah. You've given up God's grace and, or your power, and you've, you've already failed. It's just it hasn't worked out yet. And, and, and why do you take a defensive posture? Why does anybody, uh, either a person or an organization, take a defensive posture? Because they feel what? Threatened. Threatened. So what do you think uh, the churches, at least in your experience, and you can speak generally, um, what do you think either truly threatens them or, um, or what do they think threatens them? A lot of apostasy. So what, go a little further with that. They're, they're concerned that we're losing what? Losing contact with the true identity of Christ. True identity of Christ, yes. So even though Edith Peake made a leap from soda machine <clears throat> to uh, slot machine, what she was really saying was, are we really being, her, her intentions were true. She understood that steps can be taken, and they may seem small at this stage, but steps could be taken, and we no longer can even recognize who we are. So there, there's no question that there is a real concern of that. And, and I think there's, there's, real, there's real reason to be concerned about that. Yes? Or they're afraid that their ancestors might not recognize them, that we never, that was never accepted before. Why should we move forward? What they did was good enough what yeah. we're doing now is good enough, and yeah. we shouldn't possibly have any adaptation for who's to come to do something good. Yeah. <clears throat> Organizations struggle mightily with the ghosts in the machine. I've heard expressed we were uh, betraying our parents, grandparents. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. That same idea. Yes. Um, I was on the phone yesterday with a friend of mine in Oklahoma. It's a very, very conservative church Christ, and I went two years ago. 
And I was telling her, you know, some of the things we were discussing and how some of the women are, you know, participating, which I am very open to. And she said, you know, once they start that, it's just going to all go downhill. Right. And I thought, that is so unfortunate that you can't open your eyes. And I felt so blessed that I don't live there anymore because that <laughs> is where it is, that kind of thinking, very close thinking. Yeah. But it was just a Rick, I think there's a struggle between organizations that want order versus the spontaneity provided by the spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you think of spirit, you think of someone being spirited, which implies a spontaneous kind of impulsive, you know, sharing of a testimony or just saying yeah. something. And that in my experience, that doesn't really fit in the order of things on a Sunday morning, yeah. which is unfortunate. But I, I don't know how that could be cured, but it needs to be in some manner. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Um, I, I'm going to actually spend a little bit of time here at the end trying to bring forward uh, some ideas of what a, a generative church might look like, what a spirit-filled generative church might look like. And I do believe that uh, the spirit doesn't simply work in spontaneous ways, but also works in very deliberate, uh, um, purposeful ways, of course. Um, and um, but there is something about about that that is um, that has caused us. To, you know, I think Don was uh, sharing a little bit of it last night to be sort of suspicious of what the spirit is really about. And um, and I think that um, you know. Um, I think we'll wrestle with that a little bit. Other thoughts? I think that the reason this feels especially um, challenging for our churches right now is because we are in the middle of, not in the middle, I think that the new reality, the new normal is that, that change is happening so quickly. And I think the thing that we see and fear the most is that we're losing our kids. Um, and, uh, and this is, I'm not even talking about the Church of Christ here, I'm talking about the church in the West uh, is struggling to hold on to its kids. And um, that's something that we fear. We see it. It doesn't make sense to us what they're thinking and the way they're thinking. Um, I've had the biggest, theolo you know, <laughs> some of the biggest theological arguments with my daughters that I've had with anybody and uh, as they begin to see this. And I've even found myself... You know, I, I've even found myself saying, well, I'm glad your grandfather's not around to hear this. <laughs> because I do have to deal with the ghosts that are present in my, in my, own, in my own mind. Yeah. I'm thinking about just the breakdown of institutionalism in general and what you're seeing, like how Amazon competes with the big box stores. And we talk about changing, and you're using the word, I think we still need systems, we still need institutions. Right. Um, but preservation of capital, big campuses, buildings, all those sorts of things. I didn't used to be, when I was a young preacher, didn't worry about them. Right. Now I have a different kind of role in leadership yeah. that, that's changed. Like, oh, and, uh, you know, there's a responsibility to this other piece here. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to last much longer. I think buildings and that sort of thing will go almost like we're seeing in the retail world. And we'll have to be a different model somehow. That's uh, and that's scary, you know. It it, um, it 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 is scary, and 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 it's and, and the challenge is to figure out. All right, is this idea something that is uh, sort of reactive to what we perceive to be reality, or 
is, you know, is this actually a spirit-filled idea? Uh, I'm trying to argue here that the spirit of God is, I mean, Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. While we're busy here thinking about this and going to look at some models, God is <laughs> busy drawing people to his Son. And, um, and I think that what we've been invited to do is to join in that. And I'm not talking simply about just becoming more evangelistic, becoming, you know, I'm talking about joining God in the act of new creation. What God has set out to do through his Holy Spirit, through the body of Christ, is to set things right. And I think that uh, that's a very animating and exciting thing to do. Um, now, this is a model I want to uh, share with you. And it's not mine, but it's, uh, I've adapted it a little bit. Um, and the idea is, is what happens when something starts off as a movement? We read kind of the start of the movement in Acts chapter 4. But when does it become a machine? So from the movement to the machine. So just kind of go on this little, uh, this little journey with me. It starts as a movement where vision, mission, and purpose are dominant in our thinking. We're motivated by it. We're animated by it. We see what God is doing, and we pray, Lord, you are sovereign. You are sovereign, as they prayed. You are sovereign over the powers of this earth, the natural powers of this earth, the political powers of this earth. Enable us to do what you do, you know, to be a part of that. Well, there's a lot of passion, vision, and mission, and because of that, there was what? Unity and mind and but then progress becomes, um, is made, and the vision becomes reality. There's great joy in that. There's great um, um, joy and excitement in the idea that this vision is now becoming real, and we can see it. And so success and progress follows, and the movement gains momentum. And then a community is formed around that. And so the community begins to realize we need to organize around our new reality. You see this in the book of Acts as well. Okay, who's going to take care of the widows? Who's going to take care of, you know, you begin to build the system. Again, I have no quarrel with the system. I do have a quarrel when the system becomes the movement. It's the, the system, the machine becomes the thing we serve. And so the community organizes itself around uh, the new reality. And a machine is put in place and it implements systems and structures to advance and then protect the new reality. And give this tens of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, and we begin to build machines around them and suddenly we realize that we're worshiping the machine and not the mission. And the, mission, and the machine begins to replace the mission. And folks, when we're pushing against this idea, we're pushing against human nature. We are concerned about some, and by the way, we created this thing in the first place because we cared about it. Our heart was in the right place, but threats around it, and before too long, we decide, you know, we used to be building bridges, but now we're building moats. Now we're building drawbridges. And so uh, I don't want to pound on this too hard because I'm, I'm just, Pepperdine drought has to deal with this. We all have to deal with this. I promise you that right now you all know that Pepperdine's about to choose a new president. This is the time, every so often, this is when Pepperdine uh, wrestles with who it is, and, and this is a, an important time for us to 
really think deeply about our mission and where we're going and who is going to lead that. And there's going to be plenty of conversation around, all right, do we protect it or do we export it? You know, and, um, and I think you can make a valid argument for either way. But when you begin to worship the machine itself and not, the, and not work around the mission, that's when I think you've lost your way. Oh, I want to move on, but I don't want to go on too fast. Any, other, any reactions to this little journey? Does any of that look like it makes sense? Does, that, does the logic kind of work? Yeah? Okay. So there are two responses to when an organization, and, and again, this is when we're getting geeky, so let's just hang in there with that. Um, but I think there's some interesting things here. There are two responses to the momentum of this disequilibrium. That's just a big word for saying, all right, something's not right. The community recognizes as a whole. Now, they may disagree as to why things aren't right. There may be different opinions as to why things aren't right. But they all agree things aren't the way they used to be. You know? um, and so when a community senses that, experiences that, they have two responses to that. One, either the machine serves the mission, or two, the mission uh, serves the machine. So when the, mach when the mission serves the machine, the machine becomes the object of the community identity. That's when we begin to say, how do you know you are who you are? Well, look at our machine. Look at our structure. Look at our organization. Look at the way we are, the way we do things. Trust is placed in the systems and the structure. If the world beyond you is troubling, confusing, mystifying, you've got to put your trust in something. And on one hand, I know that we seek and reach out to put our trust in God and our churches, but we also put some faith in our systems. You know, we, can, we just know that this will continue to keep us moving forward. Goodness knows, now that we own property, we have to figure out how to make sure that part of the system can be supported. Um, I would imagine those of you who are in church leadership, there's a significant amount of your effort and time spent on how do we um, put the resources, get the resources we need to keep this, to build this, to do whatever. Um, so trust is placed in the systems and the structure, and in systems, structures, they harden, and uh, movements uh, will stall. If the, yeah, please. Did I hear something? A voice? No? I'm hearing things, sorry. Um, <laughs> If the machine serves the mission, it creates something. It creates value. It advances the cause. The movement is visible, it's fluid, and it's generative. Any responses yourself to what you've seen up here? Uh, is, there, uh, is there a third response? These are the two that I've come up with. But the, have you seen these? Have you seen evidence of these? Does this resonate? Give me some feedback. I do like you included fluid in the movement. As you start... And this is kind of what you were getting at. You know, where does the fluidity fit into our churches? You know, I, I think rigidity is a symptom of something. Um, and uh, we should be thinking about that, especially if we know that the world around us is in significant change, is in the thrust of, of significant change, um, to 
somehow think that that's happening around us but not happening there. So fluidity is important. I'm glad you like the word. I do too. Yeah. Well, it's just like a, I mean, family system theory or system theory. You've got a, you've got this thermostat uh, in the midst of this that's going to set the temperature for where you're at, and that I think that's I think that's the mission. Is that that if the thermostat becomes something else, that's when the problem perhaps arises. But when it when something else becomes central to to set the temperature of, of how hot you get or cool it gets. Does that make, does that make it sense? It does. And I would even say that at some point that even becomes idolatrous yeah. in the way we um, think of these things. You know, uh, yeah. I like your use of the uh, imagery of the machine because it's something that's obviously not alive. Right. It's an obviously inanimate object, or it may be animated, but it's not living. And the, one of the essences of the word spirit is life. Right. Right. I, you, you started with quoting from Genesis, right. and God breathed into Adam, and that breath was spirit. That's the breath means the same thing as the word spirit. I mean, that's life. Yes. So a living thing is fluid; it's not static. Living things change. Um, machines are not alive. Right. Right. I, I love you picking that up. Yeah. It's like a light has gone off for me here. In theory, we would call a movement. We have become a machine, perhaps. And if nothing else, this is a warning to be careful of the machine. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I would say I have seen plenty of churches that are still very much the movement. Uh, I am very optimistic about our, our, our churches. But I think the, re the reason I am is because we're becoming aware of, uh, of this. And when we begin to build our identity in anything other than the resurrected Christ, and when we build our identity in the machines that we build, in the movement itself, um, listen, I love the Restoration Movement. I love Churches of Christ. I love the big idea behind Churches of Christ. Um, um, but when my identity becomes linked to, to Pepperdine, when my identity becomes linked to my role at Pepperdine, when I become linked, uh, my identity becomes I'm an elder of a church at, you know, I am, uh, this is the way, you know, we do this, this is the way we do that. There may be good reasons to do things that way. The machine may run the way it runs for good reasons. But when it becomes your source of identity, when it becomes your raison d'etre, you know, your reason to exist, you've completely missed what, what this is about. And, 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 and I want to keep our eye on the big idea in that it, is, that it is the spirit that is actually pushing against the machine. It is the living spirit that is pushing against the machine and is trying to move us into um, joining God in this abstract idea of new generation. I am convinced that God is setting all things straight. I have, um, at least in my own way of thinking, this idea that God is doing something much bigger than we've ever imagined. Uh, and uh, what's amazing about it is he's not doing that and having us sit at the side of spectators, we've been invited into it. The early church in Acts 4 got that and said, enable us, let us be a part of it, give us that power. And these weren't the same types of people that were asking, hey, I want to buy that power. You know, they wanted to want to use it for their own pur purposes. They wanted to do that as the people of God. So yes, I appreciate picking up on the idea that there is life, um, there is breath, there is fluidity. It's, it, it is organic. 
There's something about that. Um, be mindful of the time. Um, the symptoms, and we've already spoken about some of this together, but the symptoms of, of, of this kind of thing uh, is when we see that the community finds security and comfort in predictable things. Um, and I know we're talking about the church, but if you run a business, you're part of the Boy Scouts, if you're part of whatever it is that you're a part of, if you um, are beginning to see that there's a sort of a hardening of the community structures, unity in community systems, routine is valued more than mission. Um, when institutional identity eclipses the cause, these are all symptoms that the machine is now running pace uh, or is on autopilot. Uh, any more Thoughts about this? I'm going to switch gears to some solutions here. Uh, switch gears, I didn't mean to make fun of that, but here we go. So as we think about solutions, now this I am credit, I need to credit um, a guy named Edgar Schein, and this is the geekiest slide of all, all right? So you'll be pleased to know that the geekiness is about to end, and this is the geekiness slide, most uh, geeky slide of all. Um, how do you unfreeze rigidity. Um, you know, my dad is, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when my dad would put the hose on, the garden hose on the spigot, I could never, ever, ever get it off. When my dad would put something on, he would crank it down, you know, because that's what you do. I could never get that thing off. When something was frozen, it was frozen. Um, our systems lock up and, 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 and can freeze, and our ideas around them become rigid. How do we unfreeze them? What Edgar Schein says, there are three things that have to happen. And he just, and, and he, um, and by the way, this is 30 years of, of research and scholarship that is continuing to stand. He said, these three things must happen. First of all, there must be enough serious discomfort. There must be enough, you must be convinced this is broken, this is frozen, this is stuck, this isn't working. My guess is there are plenty of organizations where they have not reached that level of serious discomfort. There are plenty who would say, no, this is, this is the way, you know, this is the way it works. But the, an organization must have serious discomfort. There must be a threat to important goals. In other words, enough to where we say, we're no longer doing we're no longer what we are supposed to be about. We're no longer doing uh, th that. And we have anxiety over that, or we have guilt over that. And then the most important thing Shine would say is there needs to be psychological safety, that people can actually see that there's a real possibility for solving the problem. Um, and that um, is a pretty big mountain to climb. What about these three? What do you think? I already told you it's a scholar who's uh, come up with them, so I know you're not going to want to push against them. But do they have a right? Um, do you do you see the you see these three? Are there others? Um, <coughs> simultaneously, been reading this book, Adam and the Genome, this week while I've been here. Somewhat unrelated, but just talking about gene mutations and stuff and. Creation versus evolution. Oh, yeah. Great book. Okay. Uh, highly recommend. But just introducing new DNA into the system. 
I mean, you, the, he talks about a, a, a mitochondrial Adam, Eve and a Y chromosome Adam. We all have two yeah. parents, but we have thousands of ancestors. Yeah. And uh, we reduce the gene pool when we get locked. We get locked into these, we reduce the gene pool. So the, the mixing of genetics, the mixing with other uh, groups, other ideas. Diversity. Um, Diversity of thought. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of what you have to do is go back and redefine what you call safe. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite stories is over the years has become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As you're getting ready to be thrown into the fire, they say, God's going to save us, which most of us are pretty much, we, we buy that part of the story. The hard part is the very next line they say, but even if God doesn't save us, we're still going to believe in him. Whereas most of us, I feel, in the church, like we have an ideal of what the church ought to look like. So we think God's going to help us get to that point. And then if we start veering off of that point, we're like, uh-oh, something's broken. We better maybe rely on the machine because God's not paying attention or whatever it is. We, we put the point of safety, you know, at a certain location. Yeah. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego said our point of safety is belief in God whether we burn up or not. Yeah. And that's where you need to get to, I think, before you're going to allow change to happen. I think that's a, that's a great observation and right on. Um, um, this is the toughest one. The, the safety one is yeah. the toughest one. Because safety is answering the question, you know, what do we value? What is the most important thing to us? What do we, you know, and, and so you're right, and that that that, that uh, threshold is at different places with different people. Yeah. Other thoughts about these three ideas? You know, the danger to stay in serious discomfort and being threatened. But if it brings anxiety or guilt, yeah, you're right. That's part of the whole threshold of, on one hand, what's the threshold of, all right, some, something, need, something needs to change, and then our trust that it can. That's, that's, the, that's the challenge here for us. Yeah. I have a, a mentor who does church planning. He he's, uh, has told me in the past, he said, if change equals vision times holy dissatisfaction times first steps times courageous leadership and that's all that has to be greater than resistance and I think that resistance is really difficult all that's difficult I yeah. guess to get to that point but the resistance is, is the thing that really holds us yeah the comfort with the machine I guess yeah and that's my word but whatever it is system or this or that I, mean, right. I think we see evidence of it all the time it's funny um, we uh, had a conference up in Fresno uh, if you know much about this state, if you're from this state, uh, you'll know that um, the Central Valley has a lot of very small churches up there. And um, and when we had this conference called Renew that uh, the College Church of Christ would put on, uh, for years we would make invitations and, you know, the predictable group would come because there were some assumptions about what this was going to be like and, uh, and then others would not. And one year... That changed. Um, we all showed up, and we sat at the table. And I know there were people sitting across from one another who do not see this the same way at all. 
But discomfort levels had gotten to the point where they said, we better do something. Um, and they began to look across around. They began to assess the spiritual resources around them and other people. And they began to come together. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm hopeful about where the church could be going. Uh, and again, not just Churches of Christ. I see the Church of Christ in the south, uh, global south. Uh, the kingdom of God is growing in all different parts of the world. But I do care about how it's growing here. And, how it, and I'm not meaning, I, this is not about church growth. This is about large communities, small communities. Now this is uh, this is an interesting one. Let, let's finish with um, this slide. See if this is helpful at all. And these are some things I've given some thought to, and um, and these are some aspects that I would say, or characteristics I'd say, of what of the generative church. So again, that's sort of a um, that's sort of a uh, abstract idea, but um, you know just. In a definition, generative means producing or reproducing. Generative people and organizations are creative, productive, insightful. They're, they're joyful. They're connecting. Um, I uh, wrote a paper for the Grosvenor Business Report because you may or may not know this, but spirituality and leadership is a huge thing in the business world right now. Um, just last, well, I guess it was, I don't know, when was, da when was uh, World Economic Forum in Davos? During the last one, the uh, CEO of Alibaba spoke, and, um, and he was talking about the disruptive nature of the new smart machine age. Um, and, um, and he said, if, if there's anything we've learned about the first round of disruption in our world is that it divides people. Uh, people get left out. People benefit, and others get left out. And so this is the president of Alibaba. This is the Chinese Google that's actually, or not Google, uh, Amazon. Yeah, right. And he gets up there and he said, one of the things the leaders of this world are going to have to do is they're going to have to develop their love IQ. We have got, anyway, he begins to give this speech that could be a sermon that we'd want preached here at the Pepperdine Bible Lecture at Harbor. And I'm thinking, these guys are co-opting some of our best ideas, you know, because they understand that this does not work without love. I'm, I'm saying that the Sermon on the Mount is still the only thing that makes sense as the way we engage this world and engage one another. And, um, and I think that as people in the business world are starting to think about spirituality and leadership, they're beginning to pick up on those ideas. So generative ideas, they produce new ideas. If it's generative, it is not uh, selfish. It doesn't say, oh, this is my idea, because what do you do? Almost immediately protect your idea. Have you ever done that? You ever been a part of a brainstorming session and you love your idea? Well, a generative idea is going to, it's going to produce another one. And the response together is going to be actually pretty exciting. And it's going to be better in a group than it is with an individual. Generative process produces new ways of doing things and new outcomes. Generative learning enhances our ability to create. Generative relationships build new capabilities in both partners. I love this one. This one says, okay, what can you and I do together that separately we cannot? Um, this is a, a wonderful idea uh, of how um, 
organizations can flourish is when they bring two people to the table, bring two groups to the table, two ideas to the table, and new capabilities are created because of it. And generative leadership helps others see opportunity in their actions. So again, the big idea is this, and uh, we'll close. Um, this is what the Holy Spirit, I believe, in our churches is about. It is leading the body of Christ to continue the work of new creation, God's work in this world. And um, that is the thing that we are looking to access, the power of that, just as the early church in Acts 4 saw that. How do we recapture that? The first step is to think through what are those obstacles, what are those barriers? And I'm arguing that there's a machine that's at work that, that pushes against this idea. But the generative activity of the spirit is something we've been invited into. So that's the big idea. Uh, we have a couple of minutes left. Any last thoughts as we, uh, as we close up today? Any reactions, responses? Anybody have a takeaway? Funny, you talked about machines, and I was a machinist in the past. There are two <laughs> companies, right? Yeah. One company was in business for almost 100 years, and they saw a change in the economy. They didn't do anything. They stuck to their hard ways. They didn't change. They just figured the world weather the storm. And because they didn't change, that company went out of business. 100 years old, refused to change. Yeah. Everything was a scrap. And I went to a, a larger company that's very well known. They saw the change in the economy. They completely took a chance and changed completely how they did manufacturing <coughs> and survived the storm. Um, they changed the way they did it. They did what things called value streaming and how to cut costs yeah. and they adapted to it. And I live in New England. Oh, okay. And Eric can testify that you can drive down any main street through New England and you'll see old churches closed and turned in. There's one in the middle of downtown Sandwich, uh, Massachusetts. They made it a dog museum, and it's, it's heartbreaking. And I can see these that, that they didn't see the change happening, and they just stuck to the old ways. And we talk about fluidity, you know. Sometimes the core message is the same, but how you deliver it to the community has to be fluid in how you reach that community. Don't get stuck. Don't become that, that closed company. Look for those signs. Yeah. may not be hardening to the arteries, but it's hardening it. Change is scary, change is uncomfortable. And like, you know, you, you were saying earlier, oh, if my grandfather would hear you today, it's okay, as long as the core message is the same. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And don't change that. And that's the part that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. But the idea that somehow, um, I mean, I'm actually underneath all this arguing that God is about change. I, I do think his purposes are not, his purposes aren't evolving but his, um, but the world is changing in the work under the work that the Spirit of God is doing in this world. Um, I have no doubt. I have so much confidence that that is, that is where this uh, that God is making all things right more than we even know, and the church has been invited to part of it. So we shouldn't be surprised there's change. I would I would argue that God's the author of it. Well, thanks for the conversation. I hope there was some food for thought, and I hope you have a great uh, rest of the week. Thank you. Thank you.